0: everybody, and welcome to another beautiful Thursday morning. You're listening to Bhavani at I Eat Green on the Progressive Radio Network, and I'm thrilled to be here with all of you today. Um, my guest will be Michael Amendola. He is the co-owner and wine director of the Villa- Village Wine Merchant in Seacliff, that's on Long Island, and he's going to talk to us about the small producers that he purchases from, many organic and biodynamic, and we will be talking about that just in a little bit but first I want to share with you some things going on in and around the news some events coming up that I'm sure you want to participate in and of course share my weekly recipe with you so first I want to share with you that um, I actually was interviewed on the enviro close-up website um, with Carl Greenberg and um, I'm sorry Carl Grossman and Um, That just came out, and you can find that on YouTube, and we've also posted it on my website. And um, it's a wonderful interview just about what I do. So many of you know what I do, but anyway, I just wanted to share that with you. Um, But I also wanted to talk about a great article that was in the New York Times just the other day about food education in the curriculum. And Stone Barns, which is a wonderful nonprofit farm, up in Tarrytown, it's a farm and educational center, they came out with a curriculum that they are promoting to high schools across the New York region. And food education is really starting to take hold more and more. Back when I was in school, you know, the girls went to home ec while the boys went to woodshop, And we learned about sewing and cooking. And it was not very... um hands-on and really great, although I did learn to sew, which was actually helpful. But those were skills that I actually then took with me and have used the rest of my life. I mean, you know, so many people don't even know how to, you know, stitch on a button, um, you know, or cook a, a simple omelet. So cooking skills are really important, but when we talk about food education, we're not only talking about cooking skills, we're talking about where your food comes from, how it's grown, how it gets to your plate. The social impact it has, who has access to it, how are the farm workers treated. There's so many issues that, that can be touched on when you are doing food education. It's just amazing. It's a interdisciplinary curriculum naturally. You don't have to work at it. It just, you know, weaves together all these issues with social justice and the environment and our health and the economics of a, of a Rural town, what happens when the supermarket closes? What happens when people move away? How do they get food? Where do they have to drive to to get food? It's it's just so interesting to study food education and then all the topics that can be woven in around it. And so Stone Barns has a great curriculum that they've come out with, um, but lots of other Organizations also have curriculums out there, and bringing these curriculums into the public schools is just brilliant and needs to happen, and its time is now. So I'm really thrilled as the Glen Cove Farm to School Coordinator. You know, right now it's it's a slow start. I'm really just introducing a new vegetable every month to the 3,200 kids in the district. Hello, everybody. Sorry about that technical issue. I hope you can hear me better now. Um, before we got cut off, I was just saying how food education really weaves together all the different important areas in education that these young people need to learn about, whether it's um, economics, health, environment, social justice, um, farm workers, transportation, how that impacts the environment. There's just so many issues when you look, take a look at how your food gets to your plate. And um, I just love the idea that food education has found its time, and the, this curriculum is really expanding in the New York area and across the country. So if you're in a school district and you're interested in um, bringing food education to your school, check out the curriculum at Stone Barnes Center for Food and Agriculture. Um, literacy has a great curriculum. Uh, focused for 8th graders. There's a lot of different curriculums out there. The world, um, Slow Food USA has a food education curriculum. So look at the different curriculums, see what you can bring into your school. As the farm-to-school coordinator at Glen Cove Schools, I'm really hoping to get food education into the curriculum. It just really needs to be addressed, and young people need to really take control and become empowered. And that's what food education can do. It can empower them to make conscious decisions for their health and to also um, realize how food marketing manipulates their opinions and kind of open their eyes to marketing in general. We don't realize how we're being manipulated all the time by ads and commercials and posters. And we need to step back and really take a look at how that marketing is impacting us and whether we really are buying a product because we really like it and it's good for us or are we buying a product just because we've seen so many people buy that product before and we think it's good. So... Anyway, I'm really thrilled to see food education um, expanding, and I hope it keeps expanding. A couple of things I wrote about this week in my Take Action blog. Um, one is to tell Congress to ban cyanide bombs. I don't know if you realize, but cyanide bombs are um, have now just been passed again by Congress. The Environmental Protection Agency reapproved the use of these M44 cyanide bombs. And the idea is to kill predators that prey on grazing livestock. But at the same time, it's, it's um, being deployed in rural areas and dogs and other domesticated animals um, can also be infected by these um, bombs and be killed. And so we are asking Congress to support... Um, the banning of the use of these compound bombs it's compound 1080 and m44 cyanide bombs so there's a petition on my website um, and i want to ask all of you to please sign that another one is also the loophole for fracking waste i know new york state has banned fracking in new york state however we border up to Pennsylvania and we have no problem taking all of their toxic waste into New York and disposing of it. And unlike other hazardous waste, fracking waste is not considered hazardous waste and is not treated as such. And therefore, it is just going into our landfills and being disposed of without any type of regulation. And this is um, a loophole that they are really taking advantage of. And in 2010 alone, more than 608,000 1,000 tons of solid waste and 23,000 barrels of liquid waste were shipped from Pennsylvania to New York. And um, and they're just being dumped and disposed of without any type of regulation. So please um, sign the petition to pass this legislation. Urge them to pass the fracking hazardous waste bill um, in 2020. And now I'd like to share with you... Um, my recipe. Actually, before I do that, let me just tell you of a couple of things going on that you may want to participate in. Um, I know there's lots of holiday parties going on and New Year's celebrations, and everyone's busy with their own with that, so I'm not going to share those. But on January 11th, uh, Slow Food North Shore, which is the local chapter that I chair, we will be having a fundraiser. Actually, it, it is a fundraiser, but an event at the village wine merchant in seacliff and my guest today will be but this is an evening um, wine tasting from um, five to seven on saturday january 11th and we will be tasting uh, a variety of organic and biodynamic wines and they will be paired with some delectable tastings that are prepared by the members of Slow Food, and we really hope you can come down and join us for that. And then also on January 17th through the 19th is NOFA New York's 2020 Winter Conference. NOFA stands for the Northeast Organic Farming Association, and the New York chapter has a great winter conference every year. Um, In the past, it's been in Saratoga Springs, and this year we're doing it up in Syracuse. So I hope you can join us for that. Then January 24th through February 2nd, the Real Truth About Health Conference is coming back to the Hilton in Melville. And um, this is a free 10-day conference with some unbelievable speakers. Um, Last year, I saw Vandana Shiva, uh, Jeffrey Smith. And Jeffrey Smith actually will be um, there again this year, but following his talk at the Real Truth About Health Conference, he will be coming to Port Washington Low Food North Shore, again, in um, collaboration with the Landmark on Main Street in Port Washington, we will be screening Jeffrey Smith's new film called, um, called Secret Ingredients. And it's all about GMOs, and it's a great uh, film. And following the film, uh, Jeffrey will be there answering any questions. So that should be another great event I hope you can come to. February 12th. Climate Wednesdays continue at the Brooklyn Public Library, and the topic for February 12th panel is Our Bodies, Our Planet, Public Health and the Climate Crisis at the Brooklyn Public Library. So I hope you can come out to that. So um now let me share with you my recipe. This is an almond-crusted tofu with chickpeas and greens. And this recipe is really great because it really can go in so many different directions depending on what mood you are in. I actually made this with a little bit of a Indian-leaning flair to it. But you can certainly do it with an Italian flair as well. Instead of doing some of the curry powder and the turmeric that I'm using, you can just sub out some oregano and basil and thyme and go a little bit more um mediterranean so that part's up to you but i'm going to share with you what i did it's an almond encrusted tofu with chickpeas and greens and so i started with a extra firm cake of organic tofu i cut the tofu into quarter inch slices and then i cut each slice into quarters so that i had um you know little rectangle nuggets kind of um that I then breaded in a cup of ground almonds. And in the cup of ground almonds, I added a quarter teaspoon of turmeric, onion powder, white pepper, coriander, curry powder, and cumin powder, a quarter teaspoon of each. So it was really quite flavorful in the coating Um, and then I was making this this dish salt-free for friends of mine who are on a low-salt diet. But if you um, eat salt, you might want to put some salt into that mixture as well. And then I just combined all of that together, and then each of those pieces of tofu, I breaded in the almond mixture. Um, You can take a... use a towel to take a little bit of the water off of the tofu, but you don't really want to dry the tofu too much because I'm not using any type of um, almond milk or um, egg or anything like that to make the almond crust stick on. Just the water alone from the tofu is enough to stick on to the tofu. So then um, I breaded the tofu pieces in that almond mixture, and I baked that in a 400-degree oven that I preheated first. Um, I put it on a cookie sheet that I lightly sprayed with some olive oil um, with, on parchment paper and put that into the oven. And you're basically going to bake that tofu pieces until they get golden brown on one side, turn the pieces over, and let it get golden brown on the other side. So it was about 10 minutes on one side, turn them over, and about another five minutes on the other side. And while those are baking in the oven, you can do your stir-fry. And very often when I'm cooking, I will try to do the tofu or the tempeh in the oven so that can be happening simultaneously while I'm doing my stir-fry. And then you bring it all together at the end, and it really saves some time for getting your meal onto the table. So while that's baking, I sauteed in my wok one onion. Now, again, I I, well, I mentioned that I was doing this... recipe salt-free. I was also doing it oil-free. So I sauteed without any oil. If you want to use oil, you certainly can, but there's also a way of caramelizing onions without using oil. And you can put the onions directly into the wok and you start stir-frying them. And as they start um, sticking, you add a tablespoon of water at a time to stir-fry in. And that works really, really well. It's, It's kind of steaming and deglazing the pan at the same time so I sauteed one onion that I cut into slivers um, half a red pepper and half of a yellow pepper three cups of chopped greens um, I had a mixture of kale, Swiss chard and collards one can of chickpeas one cup of frozen organic peas a can of fire roasted tomatoes a tablespoon of chopped garlic a tablespoon of chopped ginger A teaspoon of curry powder, a teaspoon of turmeric powder. Um, If you're going to use salt, a half a teaspoon of salt, two tablespoons of tamari, and then I put in cilantro, two tablespoons of cilantro. If you don't like cilantro, you can sub out and put in some parsley instead. So while um, the tofu is cooking, I started sauteing the onions. and then I added the garlic and the ginger and cooked that for a couple more minutes. Then I added the curry powder, the turmeric. Um, if you're going to put salt in, you can do that now, and the tamari. And cooked that for a few minutes. And that just helps, by cooking the spices a little bit in the dry wok, it helps bring out the flavor in them. Then I added the can of chickpeas, the frozen peas, and the fire-roasted tomatoes and sautéed that for a few more minutes. Then I added in the roasted tofu that I took out of the oven and added that in, um, and cooked that in with all of the flavoring so that that tofu can absorb some of that flavoring. Then I added the cilantro and parsley, and that is it. Um, It cooked up really, really wonderful. And like I said, I used Indian spices for this recipe, but you can do the same recipe and use... Uh, oregano and basil and thyme and garlic powder um, in the almond mixture and then also in the stir-fry part. And it will just be a different meal, but with the same ingredients, and it would be just as good. So now is my pleasure to introduce to all of you my guest, um, Michael Amendola. He is the co-owner and wine director of the Village Wine Merchant in Seacliff, and he has 17 years' experience in the wine industry, both buying, selling, exploring, writing, and teaching about wines and spirits. And since 2014, the Village Wine Merchant has brought a carefully curated collection of quality wines and spirits to the North Shore of Long Island. Uh, Their focus is on small production, artisanal wines, and many of the wines that they bring in are organic and biodynamic, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. So Michael, are you with me?
1: I am with you. Hi, Bavani.
0: <laughs> Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me. And it's I thought my pleasure. We could Thanks for having by... me. Sure. I thought we could start by you just sharing a little bit of your story, your history. How did you get into wines and how did you develop a love and passion for wines? Well, sure. So um, I really started getting interested in wine when I was uh, my
1: my last couple years of college. Um, as a college student. as When I was young I was always kind of a foodie and the wine uh, interest became kind of a natural extension of that. Wine and food have always kind of been together for me. So um, I was in college and I, I was always into food and I loved food and you know I started uh, having wines with dinner and I got a part-time job in a wine store when I was in college and, and Then after college, I was fortunate. I got to travel a little bit, and I was in Europe, and of course, in Europe, you know, the wine culture is totally ingrained there. So there was always wine on the table with food, and so then everything just kind of snowballed for me, um, and eventually led me into a career in wine.
0: Uh Uh-huh, and did you um, do wine training or your sommelier, or...?
1: Well, it, in those days, so this is, I'm going back about 30 years, and in those days, there weren't really accredited sommelier courses like there are now, um, and, but there were some places that had wine classes, so I would take wine classes. I was living in uh, New York City at the time. Um, I went to the International Wine Center, which was a place that was giving wine classes, um, just as like a, you know, kind of an amateur wine enjoyment class, and I ended up becoming a teaching assistant there. Um, so I helped, you know, I helped set up for classes, clean up and everything. But the big advantage of that was I got to taste a lot. So I got to taste and experience way more wines than if I was just purchasing everything out of my, out of my own pocket. Um, and so that was really like my wine edu- education at the time. I was, I was really, really passionate about it. So I started buying books and reading and tasting and making my own um, kind of judgments and decisions. Um, You know, now, of course, we see all kinds of accredited sommelier courses, but at at that time in history, we didn't really have that. So you were a little more on your own, um, but there was a lot of access to information if you were passionate and you wanted to find it.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like um, with yoga teachers. Back when I taught yoga in college, Mm -hmm. you know, I wasn't a trained yoga teacher. There weren't such trainings, you know, people just took yoga and then became a teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. things
1: weren't, weren't as codified. So, um, you know, that's, that's developed with yoga. That's developed with, um, with a lot of things, with with wine, with, with food too, right? The wine, well, I'm sure that this will be a big um, kind of topic for us today because the wine and the food things are very much tied together. I mean, think about all the cooking shows on, on television and, and the explosion of, of cable and, and, and cooking and food, you know, you can, you can watch people on TV and learn a lot about cooking. Um, and the same thing with wine. There are a lot more um, avenues to learn about wine now than there were kind of when I started 30 years ago. Um, and that's all, that's all fantastic. You know, we have more and better access to, to great wines from all over the world than we've ever had, at least from what I've seen in the last 30 years that I've been around it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really something exciting and something you can really take advantage of. Sure.
0: Now, how do you select the wines for your store? How do you find out about the good wine? Uh, or the, well, I know you well, first, in the first I taste wine. everything. You know, we,
1: we really pride ourselves on, on having a, a curated uh, collection and selection of wines across all price points. You know, the wines don't have to be expensive, but they do have to have some sense of authenticity and quality. So. That's what I'm looking for um, whether the wine is twelve dollars or eighty dollars. you know we're, we're really looking for good price to quality value ratios and all those categories across different styles. Um, and I'm really really grateful that you know we're being close to New York City I have access to some of the best wine importers and distributors in the country. so I work with with really great importers in New York City and, and they're the ones who bring Uh, wine product bring products to us bring wine samples we taste um the really great importers really know the the focus of my store and they know what what kinds of things i'm looking for so um that kind that teamwork between the the wine importers that are really passionate wine people as opposed to just like large companies that are that are strictly business like working with those small passionate wine importers um in tandem with the the wines that they import are wines from small family producers you know similar scale so so not industrial stuff but you know families making wine and you know one of my analogies is always it's like a farm stand mentality right so um... everyone understands like the best tomato you never ever had really never came from a grocery store it either comes from your backyard Or from uh, your mom if she grew the tomato, or if you you know, or you go to your local farm stand and get tomatoes in season. So Mm -hmm. the wines, you know, it's a it's an agricultural product. They're made from grapes. It's a preserved food product in a way, and we want to get them from the farm stand as opposed to from like a large kind of industrial-based company. So um, really, that that's the angle. That's how that's how I find things. We're looking for wines that are that are authentic and express where they're from. Rather than like a large, kind of homogenized style. You know, I, I want wines, if a wine is from Tuscany, I want it to have a classic Tuscan profile and expression and flavor. The same if the wine is French, if it's from Bordeaux or Burgundy, or for wines from another country that people are less familiar with, like Croatia or Austria. You know, we, we want the wines to really express the character of where they're from. So for me, that's just way more interesting than brand names and industrial labels and this kind of mass homogenized wine style that you can certainly find out there. Um, but that's not, that's not the focus of what I do, and that's not the focus of what my store does.
0: Mm-hmm. So what is the focus of what your store does? I know that you carry a lot of sustainable and organic and biodynamic mm-hmm. wines. Can you talk a little bit about your wine store and how you store sure. the wines for that?
1: Yeah. So the you know the wines in the store, like I said, we want to you know I'm interested in things being really authentic, and you know we find the, the that the wines that reflect kind of the the most authentic ranges of expression and flavors um, are comes from small family producers, and a lot of those small family producers work either sustainably, organic, or biodynamic, um, and you know we can define those three those three methods of making wine. You know, wine's interesting because you have, as, as opposed to like a, um, as opposed to like vegetables, um, you have an organic vegetable, you grow it organically. Wine, there, there's two parts to the process, right? So you're growing the grapes, and you can grow grapes organically, but then the grapes are made into wine. So that's the second part of the process. Um, so we want to kind of marry organic, biodynamic, sustainable um, techniques in the vineyard to a winemaking process. Um, techniques that are that are traditional and not manipulative and non-interventionist, like not adding a lot of chemicals, not adding fake color, um, enzyme starters, commercial yeast strains, all these things. We want really kind of just like a natural marriage of the organic production in the field and a non-manipulative um, production in actually you know fermenting and producing the wine. Um, so I've just found that. The wines that offer the best quality that we see that that fulfill those characteristics are from small family producers. And like I said, a lot of them work either sustainably organic or biodynamic. Um, And it really depends on where they are. You know, we're we're talking about growing grapes, viticulture, which is farming. So um, in some areas of the world that make great wines, it's really difficult to be organic Um, because of either the climate or the weather conditions that they have. And in other areas, it's a lot less challenging to be organic. So we see wines from all over that spectrum. Um, For me, a sustainable wine, if a farmer is being really smart and judicious and might have to to use a a spray to knock down a condition like powdery mildew or something, I'm much more comfortable with that than with, like, a large company that is spraying synthetic um, fertilizers just to increase crop load.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um the climate? I know you know I've heard that, you know, in Europe they spray a lot less than they do, let's say on the West Coast because of the climate. You know, the climate on the West Coast is, you know, um, you know, I don't know if it's more humid or drier. Or what are the conditions that are difficult and require right. people say require, so more if, spraying. you know, if
1: anyone anyone out there who's listening who gardens? Um well no, like humidity is really the most challenging condition. So to, to to grow something organically if you're running into fungal diseases, mildew, mold, um, those are the toughest things to knock down with an organic treatment. Um so like I said, it really depends on specifically where you are, like hot, warm, dry climates, let's say the south of France, it seems to be easier to be organic than in a place like Bordeaux, which is maritime and much more humid. Um I think Part of what has happened is, you know, no one really sprayed before, you know, in the, in the 19th century. You know, the chemicals weren't really available. So historically, as we got after the Second World War in Europe and um, chemicals for agriculture started coming on the market, the winemakers used them just like all the other farmers used them. Um, but then after a while, the, the winemakers started to realize several things. One is that a vineyard isn't like, um, like growing other crops because you don't rotate the field. Right? Does that make sense? Right. um, You know, if you're growing wheat or lentils or something, you might rotate your field in order to replenish certain nutrients in the soil. You plant a vineyard, it's there. It's not like you're pulling out the vines. You know, really good vineyards are actually old. They could be 50 years, 100 years old. So um, I think winemakers in Europe started to realize, as they were adding chemicals every year, that stuff was just building up. And that was bad for their soil. It was bad for the wine. It was definitely bad for people working in the field. Um, So we started to see kind of a... Uh, uh, um, a movement back to, and I'm going back now to. Let me think. Late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s. We sort of see kind of a movement back to more traditional methods without the spraying. Um, so, and but that was really driven by small farmers in Europe, um, specifically uh, France, Austria, um, certain parts of Italy, and that is a very different thing than say like a large. Wine company in California or Australia making you know 15 million cases a year, where they're interested more in the 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 quantity of the crop rather than the quality. So um, I think a lot of what we think of as spraying, it depends what is the spraying for. Is the spraying to increase um, the crops so you're making more wine, not necessarily better wine, but more wine. Or is the spraying because you're in a, a certain climate where you might lose your entire crop, you're a small family, that's your business, you can't afford to lose the crop to powdery mildew, so you might, might do like a once or twice judicious spraying um, so that you don't, you, know, you don't lose your crops and you, you make wine and you, and you have product to sell. Um, so really, I think it's really specific. Um, the, the split to me I see is more small production, really like passionate, caring farmers and winemakers, um, versus, you know, uh, industrial wine brands who try to make the same product every year, which isn't logical because, you know, the weather's different every year and the grapes are a little different, so wines that are really honest and authentic will be a little different. You know, a mm-hmm. uh, winemaker friend, told me that he, he views the like the vineyard are like his children. So if you if you looked at a picture of, of your child, say your child's twenty years old and you looked at a picture of your child, every year that picture's a little different, but it's obviously the same person. Some years there's you know, some years say my son is taller, some years he's got acne, some years one year he had purple hair, you know, another year he's got long hair, short hair, might be a little heavier, right. life, but it's the same it's the same person. It's the same identity. So authentic wines, good wines will a good vineyard will show that identity. It's the same, but it's a little different every year. So um, I think sometimes with consumers wanting to be a little more, a little less experimental or kind of wanting to rely on, um, you know, I know I can buy this label and it's going to taste like this. Um, So it's kind of driven the large wine business to kind of homogenize a style. Um, To me, that's not really transparent or honest, and, and the way they have to do it because, because grapes are agriculture, they have to add, they have to do chemical additions. They have to, if they're spraying very heavily in the field to um, like an herbicide or a pesticide um, because they don't want any disease pressure, if they kill the indigenous yeast, the ambient yeast that's in the vineyard, then when they go to crush to make the wine, they don't, a, they don't have a good natural yeast that will do the fermentation, so they have to add a commercial yeast strain. But to, if you're going to use a commercial yeast strain, you want to make sure that is, becomes the dominant um, bacteria, right, or whatever in, in, the, in the grape juice. So then you hit it with a commercial, you hit it with an enzyme starter. And so it's just like a, a series of chemical interventions um, to create this homogenized style If if one year your wine came, came out too ripe, then they'll put it in a reverse osmosis filter to remove alcohol. And they put the wine back together. When they do that, they lose color, so now they have to add they have to add an artificial color to it. So I, right. I just see like that's, you know, that's kind of anti what, what I think wine is. And that's, that's very much different from, from what I want to represent in my store, which is more just like that garden tomato. You know, every year that tomato right. might be different, but we know certain farmers, oh, we always get a great tomato from, from this producer. So it's very similar to that.
0: Right. Um, now, when we talk about climate and, you know, because of a climate being moist and, they need to spray. How come some vineyards can do it organic in California and some can't? Um, Is it more that the ones that can't just don't want to? Because that's Um, what you hear. You kind of hear that the climate out there requires them to spray. or That's what a lot of them will say to you. But then there's really good wines coming from there that are organic. Right. Um, There are good wines coming from everywhere that are organic
1: and it's definitely has been more of a movement especially um, in the u s in the last five or ten years again it's this is all driven by smaller producers because if you're going to grow organically you're going to make less wine um, but you can make better quality wine, you can have wine that has a more individual personality, right? So, um, I'd really, I mean, California's a big state, and, and sometimes we get into these generalizations about, oh, this was a good year for California. Well, I mean, what part of California? You know, I, I, I think right. the point is you have all these different climates and microclimates, you know. Like Paso Robles is really hot. The Napa Valley, the floor, and uh, Napa Valley is very hot. So, warm climate, grapes do well there. Um, you might have a, a cooler vineyard that has a maritime influence, maybe in Santa Barbara, which is and Santa Maria, which is why we see more cool climate grapes like Pinot Noir coming from there than from like warmer climates. So you know, but that cool climate with the fog coming in off the ocean might create a disease pressure, and certain grapes tend to be tougher than others. You know, Pinot Noir is notoriously fickle. Um, so I, you know, in some ways, it might be more difficult to, to make a certain grape in a certain place, make a certain wine, and be organic. Um, the, the growers, if, I think if it's honest, if they're, they're trying to be organic, but they can't, then they'll say they're sustainable. So they're still managing the vineyard in a way that is sustainably farmed. Um, but they just weren't able to, to go hundred percent organic and make the wine. I'm, I'm thinking of, of a couple wines in my store. There's, I have a Pinot Noir that's organic from California. And then I have another wine from Oregon and, some of the, it's it's not certified organic because the the grower is buying grapes from different vineyards from his neighbors, but some of them are work organic and some of them don't and some of them are in conversion. So it's not something we can say, oh, this is certified organic, but it's the right thing. You know, what I mean, it's the right idea. Like they are working towards that, but um, like I said, I, I, you know, the North Fork of Long Island is a very difficult place to be, to be organic. Um, so I just depend. I think it depends really um, on where you are as opposed to like a super large, if we say, oh, France, uh, organic wines are easy in France. Well, you know, France has has several different microclimates, so that's, that's really not specific enough um, to make that kind of statement.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I think this might be a great time for us to take a couple yeah. break, and when we come back, I'd love to talk about how you guide customers to... Know what to choose, like how you know how sure. do you help people make the choice to buy the wine that they would like, per se. So anyway, we're going to take a couple of break, and when we come back, um, I'm talking with Michael Amendello from the Village Wine Merchant, and we'll be right back.
1: Progressive Radio Network: Information for the independent mind. Get ready for an outstanding entertainment program, The Jimmy Dore Show. The Democrats are a grassroots party the same way Monsanto is a We
0: should do a diet where we just make fun of the Democratic Party. But it's important to respect the dead.
1: (laughs) And everyone is still saying, you got to vote for it. Because Trump, dude! you got to beat Trump with something. Where's your platform for ending the seven wars, Barack Obama got us in? Where's your platform for ending fracking? Where's your f***ing platform?
0: Every Thursday evening at 6 (laughs) p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. God bless you, Jimmy.
1: Have you ever listened to Anthony Robbins, watched the movie called The Secret, or read about the power of positive thinking from the perspective of any of the many fine authors who have written about the subject? They all focus on the law of attraction, which governs every second of every life of every person in the universe. Like attracts like, and everything you do, feel, and think about as a regular way of being determines your life experiences. PRN's new show, LOA Today, explores all aspects of this magnificent law of the universe every Thursday evening from 7 to 8 p.m. Join hosts Walt Thiessen and Ioana June Thiessen as we explore the law of attraction each week. That's LOA Today, Thursday evenings from 7 to 8 p.m. here on PRN. Progressive Radio Network.
0: The Thinking Person Station. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. You're listening to Bhavani at IE Green on the Progressive Radio Network. And if you're just joining us, my guest is Michael Amendola. He is the Village Wine Merchant um, owner in Seacliff, Long Island. And he will actually be hosting a slow food event for my local slow food chapter on September 11th from 5 to 7. And I'm thrilled to have him on to talk about wines. Michael um, before the break, I was asking you about how you advise people who are interested in wine. How do you give them advice as to which wines to buy and how can they choose the wine that would be right for the food they're having? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, sure. First thing we do is um, I really believe in giving people a lot of opportunities to taste because that, that taste experience is really is really the, the best teacher. So we do, uh, we do a lot things in the store we um are you still with me yeah i'm here oh sorry um yeah we do a lot of different things in the store we uh we do tastings every friday night from six to eight they're free we usually have something open to taste we do a series of wine classes we do wine dinners with some of the local restaurants in and around sea cliff glen cove um, glenhead etc and we also, like we're doing the event with, uh, with, with you, with Slow Food. So um, those are, you know, things that we do to give people a lot of op- good opportunity to taste. Um, additionally, you know, advice that I give, we just talk to people one-on-one and try to get a lot of feedback. I learn a lot from people if they don't like a wine. Actually, I learn a little more about their palate if they don't like a wine than if they do. Um, mm-hmm. And we just talk about what the situation is. Is it casual? Is it more formal? Are you just sipping? Are you having dinner? Um, you know, wines can be, wines are very situational um, and all these different, so, um, you know, that, that's, that's, that's one way that we do it in the store.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what makes a wine full-bodied? I know a lot of people say, you know, I like a full-bodied wine. What makes a wine full-bodied?
1: Well, full-bodied is a feeling, right? So, um, generally, wines that are riper that have more alcohol are more full-bodied. Mm-hmm. And wines that um, are 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 less ripe would would kind of be brighter and lighter-bodied, um, with more kind of bright acidity. So that that kind of feeling, that more density on the palate, that would be a more full-bodied expression.
0: Uh-huh. Um. And what about if somebody's saying that you know they like a velvety wine? What makes a wine more velvety feel to the what mouth? Makes
1: a wine more velvety. So, so we sometimes we talk about the structure of wine. You know, wine has 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 expressions that are both aromatic, right? You smell them. Um, expressions that you taste on your palate. That's a taste. And then wine has a feeling. So, um, of all the different components in wine, things that lead to feeling on your palate, how the wine feels. Um, is how ripe it is, how much acidity the wine has, if the wine is higher or lower in alcohol, and also tannins. So tannins are really, especially, tannins are really uh, much more prevalent in red wines than whites. Um, and tannins are like this astringent kind of dry grippiness that you get. Um, so a smooth, velvety wine would have very smooth tannins if it's a red um, and would be, you know, fairly, would be lower in acidity. Um, it also could be an older wine because as, uh, as wines age, if you get a really fine wine that's aged, it might have five or ten or fifteen years of bottle age. Then those tannins will round out, and the wine will be like complex and can be very very smooth.
0: Mm hmm. Um, and what about a vegan wine? You know, some some wines label themselves as being vegan, which then makes right. me think. You know, some wines aren't vegan. Obviously, you know, if ones have so, to promote themselves as vegan, what makes a wine not vegan? Right. So it's interesting because
1: when you were right before I came on, when you were talking about marketing and things with food, right? So we find mm-hmm. these buzzwords um, with food and wine and and the, and the marketing aspect. So vegan is a really hot buzzword. <laughs> And um, I've never, you know, and, and being in wine stores for the last 17 years, really, it's only been in the last half year where I've had people come into my store and ask for a vegan wine. Um, so f- uh, first, let's define vegan, right? Vegan would be something made without um, the use of any animal product, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the wine world, when you're as, not um, counting any kind of natural manure or fertilizer that's... In the field, right? A lot of wines will do that and and still be vegan. We would consider them vegan because the animal product's not going into the into the actual wine itself. Um, but so one process in making wines is to clarify the wine. When the wine is in a, is fermenting or it's aging, it's in a barrel or it's in some type of container or a tank. Um, that wine's not clear. It's got all kinds of, kind of hazy and cloudy. It's got all kinds of particulate matter and fine particles from um, from the fermentation process, so um, wines in the market tend to be clear. And one way to clarify them is to add something to the in the tank that will grab those little particles and drag them down to the bottom of the tank, and then you can siphon the wine off, and the wine will be clear. So uh, traditionally, uh, there were some animal products that were used, things like egg whites, um, fish bladders, some other things. So those wines would not be vegan, right? Because we're introducing an animal product into the wine. Um, I think that um, most of the wines that I know the winemakers, they don't want to fine or filter because they feel that that's stripping the wine. so if you find a bottle that says unfined and unfiltered, that wine's going to be vegan because there's no there's no introduction of an animal product in there um, I do know I've read about again you know some of the large wine brands out there they will add an animal product to do the fining or the filtration so by definition, that's not a that wine is not vegan. Um, so again, seek out small producers. Um, if you come to my store, we can definitely help you find which ones if you're if you want to make sure the wine is vegan. Um, and there are also other areas of the world like Bordeaux would be a place where traditionally they used egg whites, so you still might find a lot of that. Um, other parts of the world, you know, they they're not really using animal products at all as far as making the wine. So. I um, actually think the majority of the wines are probably vegan. Um, at least the stuff that I'm able to represent in my store. Um, I, you know, I can't speak to what some of the other other stores and the other um, like large wine companies do. But if, I mean, if you're if you're if you're a customer and you're buying a certain wine, and you, you know, go on the winery's website and see if they mention anything about fining or filtration or. Um, you could do a group, Google search and see which brands are vegan, which brands aren't. But I think if you're buying small production, organic, sustainable, especially biodynamic wines, so these are these are like Uber organic. These are winemakers that aren't introducing any unnatural chemicals or anything into the process. And almost everybody biodynamic is is unfiltered and unfined. So if you're buying biodynamic wines, you can be, be pretty certain that they're vegan.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and where do most bi- biodynamic wines come from? Um,
1: kind of from all over. So the the commonality in this again is is kind of a small production. So we really started seeing biodynamic, which was again kind of a throwback and a revital revitalization of of traditional techniques. You know, this biodynamic. First of all, you're following the lunar cycle to plant and harvest. And so this was done by cultures, ancient cultures forever before we had all the technology, right? You couldn't just, like, put on weather.com and see, you know what the weather was. You, you planted on a moon cycle, you counted certain moon cycles, you did certain things on a waning moon, certain things on a waxing moon, certain things, you know, a good example about fining is a biodynamic producer will, um, will do the fining or the racking to get the wine off the sediment on a, on a new moon, because there's less gravity, so those microparticles aren't really being pulled up into the barrel as much. Um, you know, f- France definitely. Bio-dynamic, I've got wines, um, trying to think of my head, I've got biodynamic wines from France, Italy, Slovenia, Croatia, American producers, uh, even Argentina, which is South America's a little more recent addition, but um, you know, it's just any small producer who is using those methods and you know. Definitely, no no spraying of synthetic pesticides or fertilizers in the vineyard, and no no chemical additions. You know, the only thing that they would really control would be temperature during fermentation. So just mm-hmm. if you have if you know if a if a winemaker is an older winemaker and they have a cave, you know, you go to many places in Europe and the wines are underground, so that there's your natural air conditioning. You know, so they can keep the they they keep the fermentation tanks and at a, at a cooler temperature. Um, now we find biodynamic wines kind of everywhere. I mean, a little more European leaning, but 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 we definitely see examples from all over.
0: Mm-hmm. And I um, oh, well, i just went out of my mind. Um, oh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Georgia, the Republic of Georgia. Has, mm-hmm. from what my understanding, is one of the oldest wine making cultures around. But we don't see many Georgian wines here. Um, do you carry wines from the Republic of Georgia?
1: I currently don't. Um, you're correct. It's, it's, it is one of the more ancient wine-making cultures in the world. Um, it's a very different style of wine. Um, you know, some of the wines but are buried in different. amphora and fermented in the ground. Um, the, wines, the white wines can have a lot of skin contact, which is not um, commonly what, what we've seen you know, in the American market, and it's not what people are used to. Um, but, uh, and we don't see it, you know, I'm trying to think, I don't, I don't have a lot of importers and producers bringing me wines from Georgia. The ones I've had are very different styles, so it could take a bit of time for people to get used to, you know, some of the oxidation, some of the acidity, some of the very different kinds of flavors and expressions that those wines show.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Um. Inter- very interesting. And I've also heard that wines from Europe, where they might not use any type of um, um, added sulfites over in the vineyard in Europe, be, in order to import them, they will then add sulfites. Is that true? Um, are the wines well, different? Not, no, not really. So there's a couple of things going on. To, well, yeah.
1: well one, all, all wines contain sulfites. It's part of the... Part of the winemaking process. So what we're concerned with is when it says no added sulfites, right? Um, wines in Europe, the EU does not require labeling for sulfur. So if you're on vacation or if you're on a trip and you get a bottle in Europe and it, it doesn't say anything about sulfites, it doesn't mean the wine is sulfite free. Just means that they don't have to label. Um, the when the wines imported in the U.S., the government requires contained sulfites on the label. So. Almost all the wines you see will say contains sulfites. Some of them will say no added sulfites, which means mm-hmm. there's still a little in there. Um, but two but larger points. We don't, I haven't seen any link scientifically between sulfur and headaches. So I, I do have customers who are concerned about sulfur, added sulfites, because they, they, they're concerned about headaches. And I think headaches are much more common with just added chemicals in the winemaking. So if you're going to drink more organic, sustainable, Biodynamic small producer, you're you're not going to get headaches. Um, I've seen this with a lot of customers. I have a lot of customers who couldn't drink red wine for a long time, and now we have them back into really beautiful red wines because we just gave them really clean, natural products. Um, So the headache thing is a little um, misunderstood. And secondly, it's so what's the added sulfide? What's the what we call what's the free sulfur? What's in it? So pretty much everything that I would have in my store is kind of under 30. Thirty milligrams a liter, which is pretty low. Um, You know, French fries from a fast food restaurant are like fifteen hundred. I think Tropicana orange juice is like three hundred. So you're talking a tenth of of that. If so, if your orange juice isn't giving you a headache, then and your wine is, I don't think it's the sulfites. I think it's it might be some other stuff. And some people have sensitivities. So there are certain grapes that that people tend to react to more than others as far as off reactions. Um, but that's on a, like a customer-by-customer customer basis. So we really work with people um, in regards to that. If they have a reaction, I definitely want to know. And then I've seen a lot of kind of, I have a lot of experience with it. And I've seen some patterns. So we tend to move them into other, other grape varieties, other regions, if they're reacting to
0: certain things. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I, I did believe that, um, you know, if people were drinking organic wine, they wouldn't get as many headaches. But I, would, I guess I was putting all organic wines more together. Um, how can it be affected by region? What do you mean by that?
1: Well, so, so grapes and regions have affinities, right, just like any other plant. You know, pineapples have an affinity to Hawaii, and apples have an affinity to the Hudson Valley. So um, a grape like Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a fairly, which is a full-bodied um, Ripe grape has an affinity to hot climates, so say something like Napa or Sonoma in California. Um, like, and Cabernet is a grape that seems to have a lot of um, components in the skin, which can cause people reactions. So I, th- I think a couple things can be going on. If you if you buy a certain ca- California Cabernet, the wine might be 15 and percent alcohol. So that's a lot of alcohol, as opposed to say a Pinot Noir from Burgundy that's 12 and a percent. Cabernet and Syrah tend to be the two grapes that I've seen that people have the most reactions to. Like the first thing is we level the playing field and everything has to be, you know, organic or natural production. So we make sure we're not giving anybody wine that has like chemical additions. Um, you know, and those chemical additions, there are hundreds of them. It's really crazy. Um, so once we level that, if they're still getting a reaction, maybe they're reacting to Cabernet. So then we will get them into a cool climate region. We might give them something like Pinot Noir or something like Gamay, which is the grape that makes Beaujolais. That's that's almost always a winner for us. People that tend to react to reds, when we give them an organic um, Beaujolais, they tend to not have a reaction. I can't think of. Of any, I've got a couple of biodynamic wines in the store, and, and I can't think of any customers that have had reactions from those um, who've had reactions from other red wines. So, uh, you know, it, it's grape related, and it can be climate related.
0: Very interesting. Never even thought about that. And what about the aging process? Um, I know some wines. You know, they say, oh, this wine's better to drink young. This wine, oh, you need to let it age for a couple of years in the bottle before you can drink it. How does one decide how much aging a wine needs it's well that really
1: comes into personal preference and experience um, i mean ninety five percent of the wines in the in any store are ready to drink right now. Um, there are a handful of wines that are like more serious wines from from regions that are built they, they would have more more tannins when they were when they were harvested or or for you know and it, it just might take. A couple years for those wines to mellow out and have a different expression. Um, some people might like a certain wine at three years old, and some people might like a wine at 13 years old. Um, it depends. Some regions, you know, I've got some wines in the store where, like, the current release is 10 years old because it's a certain producer, they have a certain tradition, and they really don't like to put the wine into market until they think it's ready. Um, so there are those. But it, it's really just a handful. Pretty much everything is available to drink now and then it's then personal preference. You know, as you try more wines and get more experience and this is advice that I really like to give the, to people is, you know, there's there are thousands of wines and grape varietals out there and I see customers really they, they stick with what they know which is familiar and I completely understand it and, and the market is enormous, right? It's 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 overwhelming how many wines are out there. But there's so many great wines to discover. So if you're basically just sticking with the same five or six grapes, we actually call them the big 6. Sorry, do you want me to name them? Sure. Okay, so for reds, uh, Cabernet Sauvignon, uh um, Malbec, and Pinot Noir. Those are the three most popular reds. And on the white side, you got Pinot Grigio, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Those would be the three most popular whites. Now there are great versions of wines from all those cr- grapes, but that's only six grapes. And you're if you're just locked in on those six, then you know you're ignoring almost, you know, almost super large percentage of wines from Italy, for one. You know, everything in, in Tuscany is going to be based on Sangiovese, a different grape. Um, you know, different regions have their grapes. And I just think, you know, it, it's a bottle of wine, especially if it's not expensive. If you spent, like, $15 on a bottle of wine and you didn't like it, it's fine. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. um, it's not like a, a, a super important life decision. I, I just I advise people to try new things to experiment. You know, we've got so many great wines in the world. I always see people finding new things that they didn't know about. That's really exciting. Um, And just that kind of open-mindedness and branching out can really lead you into a lot of interesting discoveries.
0: Mm -hmm. But I think some people think, you know, like let's say you buy a $20 bottle of wine, and then you let it, you don't drink it for five years. Does it get better or does it get worse? Does it get more, you know, is it more valuable? or is it different for um, All of those scenarios are possible. Um, if it's a quality wine, there's a good chance
1: it gets better. Um, if it got worse, there's a chance that your storage was bad. You know, you got to treat a bottle of wine like like a piece of fruit. It's you can't just you can't leave it in a hot car for 3 hours and expect it to be good. You know, it's it's got to be in a cold, stable, dark place. Your storage doesn't have to be perfect. But um, wines will go bad if they're stored for a long time in an environment where the temperatures fluctuate. Like say, it goes from 40 degrees to 85 degrees. That's that's not good, and um, and that could certainly cook what we call cooking a wine, or it could it could make it bad. Um, certain wines definitely become more valuable. That's. You know if you're buying that wine when it's released and it's no longer available, and say you've got a bottle of nineteen ninety five Bordeaux and you can't get it anywhere, that bottle's going to be a lot more valuable in the market than it was you know fifteen years ago um but it's it's that's also one a, a kind of a case by case basis you know I have inexpensive bottles that I've aged and and really really enjoyed, and those aren't things that became more valuable or anything they're just things that that I enjoy because I'm a wine person,
0: mhm. So interesting, so many things to think about that you don't even think about when you're just grabbing that bottle of wine. But um, I'm really excited to know that you actually have regular wine tastings. I didn't know that. I will definitely come by for those. And I hope to see many of my listeners out there uh, joining us on um, January 11th for the wine tasting that we're going to host at your store. And how would people find you on the web?
1: Yeah, so uh, we're we're on the web at VillageWineMerchant.com, um, and we're also on social media, uh, Instagram, and uh, and Facebook. Facebook is Village Wine Merchant, and Instagram is uh, at, vi- at at um, Village Wine SC for Seacliff.
0: Wonderful, wonderful, and well, Michael, um, thank you so much that, for you know, joining us. Go ahead, do you want to add
1: something? Yeah, no, I just want to say, you can always throw us a call. We put you on our email list. We send out a once-a-week e- email called Cliff Notes, because we're Sea Cliff, and that that will give you the whole lineup of what tastings we're doing, restaurant events, wine classes, et cetera. Wonderful.
0: Thank you. And everyone out there listening, thank you so much. Have a wonderful holiday next week. Um, I will not be on the show before the holidays come, so whether it's Hanukkah, you celebrate Christmas, Kwanzaa, whatever it may be, Um, Enjoy it, and I will see you all the following week. Have a great rest of the week, and bye for now. Bye, Michael. Thank you.